hope, aspiration, connection, belonging, culture. These are the stories we tell. Join me as I speak to storytellers from across the world and hear about what inspires them to create the reality they want to live in. Daniel Prince, welcome to the stories we tell. Thank you for having me, mate. Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate you taking the time. And Daniel, one of the things I try to do, or the key theme really behind this podcast, is to see how stories shape the broader culture uh, and then how culture actually ends up driving Bitcoin adoption right into this wonderful world that we all believe is possible in our lifetimes, right? One of hope and freedom and abundance and what have you. Uh, and you've been involved, in, in my view, in three very interesting story arcs. And maybe there are others that you, you could talk about as well. But we'll start with the first one, which is the stories we tell children, right, about how their lives are meant to be. At the school, you know, they, they sit for an entire day in school and absorb this information to the extent that they can from these authority figures. Uh, and then that's, that is... is is what counts as an education and gets them further in life. So you wrote a book uh, called Choose Life, a, a book that I enjoyed reading. My wife certainly did. Uh, I hope one day we could take the leap and do what you did. But uh, what was that journey like? And uh, just to start with taking that leap that you did. Okay, yeah. Taking the leap uh, was a, a huge decision, obviously, for kids um, I had to quit, quit an 18 year career and take four kids out of, uh, out of school and sell pretty much everything we owned to start traveling the world via the sharing economy back in 2014. Uh, yeah, that, that was, that was a huge, huge decision because like you said, you know, the stories we tell ourselves are the stories we've been told, uh, these stories or narratives or for want of a better word, agendas, are shoved down our necks from the age of five in earnest, uh, and perhaps even younger than that, depending on which country you live here in France, where we're currently based. Uh, they take kids at the age of three into the education system. And uh, to me, this is this is the state's biggest weapon against us, against humanity, uh, for them to steer our thinking and, uh, you know, create this kind of virtual world in which we, you know, sleepwalk through most of the time. And, and how do they do that? Well, it's the stories that we have been told and the narratives and the agendas that we get force fed through the education system. And we've all been through it. And if you think back to your days at school, and what you were taught and what you were learned, what, what you were learning about, when you enter into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, all of that just starts crumbling in front of your very eyes. And it it does shake a lot of people out because they're not ready for it. They're not ready to face the truth that they've been lied to for their whole lives. And it's uh, a big, bitter red pill to swallow. And it's something that, is so insidiously done. It was designed in such a fashion and they won't give it up. 
they they want this education system to keep getting bigger and bigger. They want kids to be in school for longer and longer. So the days have lengthened over the decades. The uh, the terms have lengthened over the decades. The the price put on a certificate has increased over the decades. And the, the, the narratives have just got to a point now where it's glaringly obvious what's going on with the way that they are trying to push these narratives through the schools. And we are at the, like this, the, the pinnacle of clown world at the moment where they are insisting on pushing the message through the schools that there are three sexes or three genders or whatever. Now, these, these stories that are being told to kids are, are very, very dangerous, but they're, they're designed in such a way to cause uh, divisiveness and competition, uh, anxiety, fear, uh, depression, which is everything that any nation state and government, an invisible hand can feed on. Uh, so when, when we stepped out of that, I had been fully, fully involved in it. You know, I, I was, I had my head down. I was Mr. Hamster wheel. I was working 10, 11 hours a day in foreign exchange markets, moving hundreds of millions of dollars and euros around without even thinking about what I was doing, but it didn't matter to me because I was paid on commission and just had to turn up to work every day and do as much as possible and get on with it, right? And get the 2.4 kids and get the white picket fence, keep your head down, work hard, work till you're 65, 70, 75, because that's a moving goalpost as well. And then sit back, be fat, be happy, and maybe then I'll get to be able to go and spend more time on the golf course, right? That's a story. And that is a very well-crafted story. The American dream, not to trigger anybody in the, in the US that's listening, is a story. It's propaganda of the highest order. And how many people have fallen into the trap of getting the, the perfect job, the perfect husband, the perfect wife, the perfect kids, the 2.4 kids, the white picket fence, uh, the two cars, the country clubs, you know, the, 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 the two-week holidays to the all-inclusive once a year, um, the, the, the golf membership, this is the stories that we're told and you're, you're, you're conditioned to believe them. And it's not just school that tells you these stories. It's the television that tells you the stories. It's the movies. It's the, um, any, any of the like glossy magazines, all of this stuff that is being pumped and now even worse, social media and our kids obviously are exposed to this. We didn't have that at least. Uh, we, we had television. Our parents didn't have television, but you can see how all of this has just uh, rolled downhill. These are all storytelling mechanisms uh, to um, to shape society by those that are very much interested in uh, eugenics and uh, societal control. So, yeah, these these stories are very very important to take a another look at. Like what, what trap have I fallen into? What corner have I painted myself into? How do I get out of it? And a lot of us listening to this call or watching this video 
that are already here in the Bitcoin rabbit hole. That's why we stayed, because Bitcoin shatters all of that. And uh, yeah, well, Bitcoin is a story in itself, I suppose. Like the most incredible story at the moment, you know, it's, it came out of nowhere. Uh, the guy or the girl or whoever that designed it used a fake name and then disappeared. Like what an amazing story to tell. Uh, I, I hope it's um, captivating enough that we can get more people to, to listen to it. Because when you get beyond the story and you start exposing all of the lies and you start understanding what money truly is and that money should be agreed upon by the people for the people rather than by the state for the state and against the people, then we can get into having uh, much better conversations with each other as you and I have both experienced when we go on these in-person meetings and in conferences and, and events and stuff. So yeah, that, that would be um, where we could kick this off, I suppose, and, and anywhere you want to take it from there. Yeah, I'm, and, and that was a great summary, Daniel. And there's something obviously that resonates for Bitcoiners who've sort of broken out of that, that thinking, have shattered those illusions, right, that, that society seems to hold on to. But why is it so hard for, uh, why do you think it is? That clearly this is a story that a vast majority of society has bought into and actually likes. And right? when you try, when I try and convince some of my my sons in uh, public school out here, uh, uh, up where I am in uh, New York State, and you know we, we sometimes meet up with uh, with his par his friends' parents and you know for dinner and whatnot. And I try talking to them about some of these things, and they seem perfectly happy where where they are. They don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. Uh... Because without even realizing it, they are uh, a slave to the system. They're so dependent on it. Uh, and especially if you're working in the public sector, right? Uh, which is the, um, the goal of any government is to get slowly bigger over any four-year term. Uh, like the actual remit for any president is get, you know, open more divisions and uh, more bureaucracies and more administrations, more ministries or whatever. And keep this thing growing, like keep the state burgeoning uh, and, you know, raise taxes a little as well, if you can, in some area. Um, so you've, you've got a, a huge percentage of the population that is completely and utterly, totally dependent on their income, which comes directly from state, state employment. But even those people that uh, work in a private sector, um, they, they feel that they've made it right if they've got a good wage if they've got every, oh, if they've ticked all the boxes that we just went through that you're winning right you're winning the game of life uh so it's very very difficult for them to even entertain that hmm what if like there is something else and what i've been doing for the last 20 to 30 years has just been playing into the hands of your your local government or your state or um you know the invisible hands that are behind these people and controlling everything and the central banks and, and whoever else uh yeah that's um that's really really difficult to to um take you've got all of the sunk cost fallacy behind your degrees 
your masters, your PhDs, whatever it is, you know, you, you spent four years at university going through all of these courses and you had that crippling student debt that you're probably still paying off as well, which is another deal with the devil. Uh, and you have that 15 years or 12 years, K through 12, whatever it is, uh, all baked into that as well. So to, to walk away, to turn your back and walk away and try and walk away from all of that baggage is very, very difficult. And especially if you are married too, and the other person thinks you're going slowly crazy by even entertaining the idea of making a change because we worked so hard to get here. We finally got the house that we wanted and we remodeled the kitchen and we've got the cars that we wanted. And, you know, all of that stuff that you that should make you happy and feel successful and as if you're winning in life is all empty and you're forever chasing happiness and you're forever on the hamster wheel and you'll never be able to get off because of the uh, the increased amounts of leverage and debt that you're, you're taking out just to try and keep up with the Joneses. Uh, and then there's there are people as well that quite frankly are in um have managed to get themselves into a position whereby they're they're being grossly overpaid for for their level of uh, actual skill or intellect no one wants to give that up right absolutely not but i guarantee you anybody listening to this can look around their office look left or right you know who i'm talking about you know the people that have just managed to chance it there and do as you know, as, as minimum as they can just to cruise through life and get a paycheck come the end of it. Are they going to question that? Absolutely not. Are they going to take some self-responsibility and start looking into uh, what Bitcoin is? And I mean, they're the kind of people that are going to get scared away immediately by the, the idea of uh, self-sovereignty, right? Um, and actually being more in control of your life. Uh, yeah, so... I would say, yeah, that that's that's my take on on the people that are hesitant to even walk to the edge of the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And uh, because what happens first is you look in the mirror, and that that's that's pretty bad. Yeah, and that is the challenge for for folks like like us who are Bitcoiners and trying to orange pill people because this doesn't work if it's just a hundred thousand or even if it's just a million of us in ten years' time, right? We need. We need hundreds of millions of people, maybe even over a billion people on a Bitcoin standard for for this world that we believe in um, to materialize. And and the challenge is you have a large, large percentage of the population that has bought into what they believe is the better story. And until they see an even better story and until they not just see until they actually feel right that this other story is a better one they're not going to switch. And there, there is so much resistance there right now because everyone feels comfortable where they are. For the, I'm, I'm, and I'm talking about Western countries, right? the US and most of Europe. I, I mean, there are parts of the world where people really feel the pinch and they, and they need to you know, look for alternatives. Right? We might see that happening in Argentina um, and other places over the next few years. But, but in the US and in most of Western Europe, that's not the case. People are sort of uh inured um or, or rather they they, they just uh, there's an allure i should not inured there's an allure to this comfortable life where you don't need to question everything right you just show up at work you uh you know you 
you, you, you donate eight hours or nine hours a day of your time and, and attention to move, to perhaps move uh, the stock price of a large company by a few basis points <laughs> and make zero contribution to the world, but, but they're okay with that. So that is the challenge. And, I, I'm, and I'm wondering how, if Bitcoin has up, up until now have gone about it the right way in presenting the better story, um, to, to folks, right? how, how do folks make that jump? And and have we taken the right approach up until now in saying, hey, look, it's it's everything's broken, you know, it's going to fail. And people are saying, what's what's going to fail? Everything's fine. Things are great, right? So how are we presenting the better story? <laughs> yes. Oh, man, that that's all part of the fun, isn't it? Like that, that, when all of those epiphanies start dropping in your head in the early, early days and, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the epiphanies don't stop coming. They slow down a little bit, but they keep coming. You know, they're, they're still waiting in the epiphany mempool there. They, they, they will come. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it is a uh, it's a lifelong pursuit of. Uh, of, of yeah, of learning, you, you 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 wake up to the fact that wow i'm i'm learning and i can't stop learning and this is just amazing and i've never felt like this before i have to share this information i've got to help all of my friends i've got to help all of my family and then you just come bursting in one like dinner time be like hey you guys like everybody stop what you're doing sit down i gotta tell you about this bitcoin thing and then you just come across as this absolute crazed lunatic so that is that's generally how we start orange pilling people. And that is tried and tested the wrong way to go about it. Uh, but it's very emotional and you can't hide your enthusiasm. So I hope the people that you are doing this to will at least pick up on the enthusiasm and the positivity and the hope and the integrity that, uh, that you're trying to you know, tell them. The, the words will fall on deaf ears though. Uh, so for those of us that have been... Um, in the space a little bit longer, we've come to realize one, that enthusiasm goes away by the time you've just like talked to yourself purple in the face and the people aren't going to listen to you and they don't act and they don't, uh, in, in the end, probably even start uh, avoiding you. Uh, so you kind of go back into your shell a little bit. And then when you, um, you sit back and you've, you've learned a little bit more and you can, you know, enter into a conversation and pick your moment, pick your time. When you, when you hear that person, when you hear their pain point, right? It's classic sales. Like you just sit there quietly and listen to the pain points around the table because they will come up all the time. People are moaning about the same things. And then you just like, right, oh, okay. So their pain point is that at this moment in time, their pain point is that this moment in time, they might be two different things, but as we know, Bitcoin fixes everything. And then it's going to be a, a case of, do you present your solution at that point? Or do you just note and then think, huh, yeah, Billy had this pain point, which he brought up last Thursday. I'm going to try and have a little chat with him at this point, ask him around that pain point. Oh, how's that problem you were talking about? Is it still the same thing? Da -da -da -da. All right, yeah, 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 you know, agree. And then just offer the solution in a very, very simple manner and explain why Bitcoin fixes that particular thing. People at the moment are obviously complaining uh, about prices going up and inflation. 
And the story we've been told is that inflation is a rise in prices and it's good for the economy. That is what a PhD in economics will tell you. This is the level of deceit that we have faced, but that's their story. So you've now got to challenge that and you've got to challenge their intellect and you won't have a PhD in economics. So who the hell are you to engage in a conversation with this person, even if they're one of your closest friends? You still have to respect this level of expertise, right? This invisible barrier. So how do you do that? That is the skill. That's what we as Bitcoiners have to get uh, better at, I suppose. Um, and, and taking it one step at a time uh, and softly with, uh, with humility and being able to back up what you're saying as well. You know, if you like, if you turn around and say, Bitcoin fixes inflation, blah, 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 blah. Like that's not going to work. But if you like, if you ask an honest question, like what is like the, the definition of inflation? Like what they like, you know, all that four years at school, what's the, what's the definition? And when they give you the definition, oh, it's a rise in prices and it's good for the economy and blah, blah, blah. You're like, huh? Cause I, 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 I have a, I've read a book recently and it's given me a different definition of inflation and uh, the original definition, because apparently the, the definition of inflation was changed. So the original definition from what I've learned in the, in the readings that uh, you can borrow the book, if you like, you know, it's uh 101 lessons uh, in economics. Uh, th that definition being an increase in a monetary supply. What have we been going through the last, well, since 2008? You know, what, what, what is anything if quantitative easing isn't adding money into the monetary supply, therefore vis-a-vis -vis, that would be inflation. And if that is inflation, then a rise in prices of goods and services would be a natural correlated like you know phenomena of the the cause which was inflation in the first place now you should be in a conversation right they could still shoot you down but at least you are actually bringing some kind of point to the table and you're backing it up hopefully with references as well and this i think this is the best way that we can start having these conversations and sharing articles you know just a few days later remember that conversation we had about da da da, -da? This is where I learned that from, or this is the book that I got it from. You can lead the horse to water, or you can lead the the, the pleb to the rabbit hole, but you can't force them to jump in, right? <laughs> I, I think as you, as you were saying that, Daniel, uh, what struck me is certainly for me, and I suspect other several Bitcoiners is is showing some discipline in telling these stories. Maybe there is a time and place for a short story. In fact, most of the time, it could be a very disciplined and targeted point or story. Uh, as Because otherwise, we most of the time, we end up like the meme of the guy who's standing in front of a board with all the threads on it. And the next thing you know, you're talking about some grand conspiracy theory and right how Bitcoin fixes war and everything else, where in, in, instead, you should have been focused on that one single pain point, um, as, as you mentioned. Uh, but sort of circling this back to uh, the topic of kids again and school, uh, you know, my, I, I was fortunate. 
I went to school in India and I went to a school that was heavily influenced by the philosophy of Jiddu Krishnamurti. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a philosopher from almost 100 years ago, maybe a little less. Uh, but uh, so I was fortunate in having a schooling that was that actively asked students to challenge authority and ask questions. And, you know, we used to break a lot of barriers. And so, so and, you know, my wife, uh, she's from Poland, but she, you know, she's a psychotherapist. She studied children uh, um, and, and how they learn. And so we're on the same page when it comes to homeschooling and potentially even world schooling. And we've done to our son, who's, you know, as you know, Daniel, the same age as your kids or as a couple of your kids. Uh, and we've said, hey, you say the word and we'll take you out. You know, you're, you're good to go. Right. We homeschool, world school, you name it. Well, world school will be tricky with from, um, you know, it gets expensive, but homeschool, certainly. And he says, no, I have my friends. I like it. I don't I don't, I don't mind the exams. I don't mind uh, all of this because I get to hang out with my friends. And, and that is that is a question that's nagged me as well, which especially at an once kids start becoming teenagers, young teens and a little older, that friend circle, that social circle becomes really important. Right. I mean maybe falling in love for the first time, right? Things like that. And in a homeschool or world school setting, that gets a little challenging. What, what is your counterpoint to that, Daniel, as someone who's thought about this and written a lot about this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first thing I would point anybody towards would be uh, a book called Hold On To Your Kids by Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, your, your, your wife will know exactly who he is. He's a uh, a psychologist as well. And he wrote a book about uh, this whole uh, problem of um, your your kids being brought up by their peers rather than by their parents. And um, again, this is a force function of uh, the education system. It is designed this way. It is designed to take kids away from the family unit and to weaken the family unit. Um, and a lot of people might be thinking, oh, well, whatever, what a conspiracy theorist. Again, this is very well documented. You can go and read. Uh, I, I recommend John Taylor Gatto's books uh, to start with Dumbing Us Down and then uh, Weapons of, of Mass Instruction. And this was a, uh, a well, he was a, uh, a New York State uh, public school teacher, state school teacher, I should say, public is a, a very cozy psyopy word that is used by the state, but is a state school teacher for 30 years and uh and he just like blew the lid off all of this um so yeah the the whole socialization uh argument about kids not being able to socialize if they don't go to school uh well let's look at let's look at school as a social arena how many hours a day are you there? Maybe anywhere between six to eight hours a day. How many lessons does that encompass? Probably four to five. So the bulk of your time at school would actually be in a classroom setting where you are expected to not speak. You are expected to not socialize. You are expected to sit down, be quiet, and pay attention with a straight back. So when does that actually give you the chance to socialize? Well, recreation, but as we were talking about earlier you know the, the days are becoming uh more and more packed with with lesson time and less recreation time and that recreation time 
um, you probably end up spending most of your time avoiding the people you don't like rather than, you know, hanging out with the, uh, the, the people that you do like. Uh, and again, there, there are certain rules that come with recreation. In fact, uh, some, some in some UK schools, um, certain uh like houses they're still called houses i believe aren't supposed to mix with other houses so you're not allowed to uh to go and do that most uh sporting activity has been uh banned through recreation so you're not allowed to go and uh, let, let off steam and and play around and and you know socialize in in that manner uh so i and i i also point out to um to parents that complain about well, whenever my kid gets home from school i ask them first thing how was your day uh, 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 okay. oh, what did you learn today uh, not much okay well, well what are you gonna do what are you doing right now i'm just gonna go call jimmy I'm like, huh what you've been with him for the last eight hours like why can't you speak to me he's like no no, no i'm gonna go call. and then go and speak to their friends on their phone for the next two hours because that's when they get to socialize with their friends when they're at home and they can call them and actually speak to them rather than when they're locked in uh, a classroom for six to eight hours a day and not allowed to speak with them. So the, the, the friends that are made in school, and again, it's going to trigger some people when they hear this because they might still be best friends with the people that they made in uh, the friends they made with school. Uh, it's forced association. You made a, uh, a camaraderie rather than an actual friendship that was formed out of a uh, a natural social uh, encounter. And this is so obvious when you go to the Bitcoin conferences and you see how we all come together under one roof in a voluntary setting and everybody there is just like talking their minds off and it doesn't matter from like completely mixed ages again at school you segregate by age group you might even segregate by sex too like you know boys and girls schools and you know like so damaging when you psychologically look at that uh but you bring you bought your kids i bought my kids they connected they just happened to be the same age but it wouldn't have mattered if they were 16 or 12 they would have still connected you and I connected. I have no, no idea what age you are, no idea where you came from, like your cultural background or whatever. Same with your wife. You guys had no idea about me and all the other people that we met. At that lunch table we sat at, there was a guy from uh, an American from Australia, an Indian from America, a Brit who lives in France. Um, Shooter was there as well, right? An American dude. Kaysen was there. And we were just sitting around having the most in-depth conversations with the kids at the table and they weren't sitting at the end look you look around a restaurant now and you can like you, you look all oh, right okay look at that family over there kids are just on their ipads doing nothing at the end of the table eating chicken nuggets and chips whilst you're eating like you know really nice interesting food that's oh that's deplorable that is a breakdown of the family when when we were there, our kids were all part of that conversation. They were asking really deep, interesting questions. They want to be part of it. And we invite them in. That is true socialization. And that is not what happens in a school setting. The school setting is set up for the exact opposite to happen. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, it's, 
so how do we handle it? How do we fix that? How do we give them uh, association with, with other kids? Uh, well, sports clubs is the best way that we've found to do it. My son loves, uh, like your son, they love to play football. So he belongs to the local football team and they train twice a week and they have a match once a week and then they go and do their own kickabout on a Sunday on, a, on um, you know, just a self-voluntary kickabout. So that's four times a week he's socializing with people um, of, so kind of the same age, it would be anywhere between 13 to 15. And then on the Sunday, anybody and mixed sexes as well, which is good to see. Uh, my daughters, um, they do horse riding. So they go horse riding uh, once a week and they get to meet their friends there. And then they will go and volunteer and help the uh, the younger kids on uh, on another day of the week there at the stables so they can just be around the horses and the dogs and help um, younger kids. And that's when you really see like the magic happen, when the older kids connect with the younger kids and vice versa. So the, the younger kids are just in awe. Like, how do they know this stuff? <laughs> you know, How did they learn it? And the older kids just love seeing that response you know, they feel the responsibility that they're passing down knowledge. And there is no greater human feeling than that of, you know, adding value to somebody else. And that's why I love doing the podcast. That's probably why you love doing the podcast uh, and, you know, getting out and meeting people when we go to the conferences and events uh, and getting the feedback. When you realize that you've, you've helped somebody uh, that is addictive and kids feel it just as much as adults. Um, but they're, they're just not given that ability in a school setting. In a school setting, you're competitive rather than collaborative. You have to compete with the rest of the peers in the class to try and get the best grade from the teacher at all costs, right? Um, and it, that, that's just a very, very weird and sadistic kind of uh, situation to be in as well because as you know when you get out of that and you get into the actual labor market and the work market you're like you you come together as a team to solve problems and you share ideas rather than like you know keep everything to yourself well at least you should i'm sure there's the psychos in the office that try and take uh you know the, the credit for everything that the team has achieved um but yeah that that's the way we do it when we were traveling we would uh, meet up with other world schoolers uh, that were um, that had either stopped traveling and resettled back in their homes and we could go and stay with them or that were traveling and we were just crossing paths. So you'd always be constantly uh, bumping into other families uh, doing that. Homeschooling groups are uh, popping up all over the country now, all over the world that you can plug into and, and go and get that uh, relief. You can still go to... Um, summer camps and uh, ski camps and whatever else and get your kids exposed to uh, social uh, interactions. I take mine to as many conferences as I can. They love interacting with uh, adults and kids alike. Um, then wider family, obviously, reconnecting with wider family and you know, reconnecting with cousins and aunties and uncles and, of course, you know, nannies and granddads. Uh, once you break out of that structure, you can actually start doing uh, you know, a lot more of this kind of stuff. So, and real socializing, not the, uh, not the forced association. Yeah. And you, you brought up world schooling. Uh, it's something I would love to do just probably to, because I have wanderlust, so does my wife. Right. But 
uh, I think one of the challenges, apart from being expensive, right? I mean, it's not cheap to travel <laughs> across the world and you know spend weeks or months in a foreign country and keep hopping. But uh, going back to the topic of social socialization, I think what you said from a uh, home, a homeschooling standpoint, joining football clubs or other sports clubs makes complete sense. How would you address that in a world schooling setting, though? Because you are, you're not in one place, right? You're constantly moving. So you, your kid can't quite join a sports club in, in that situation. Right. Yeah, depending on um, how long you're going to spend in each place. If it's a couple of weeks, then yeah, no. So you just get down the park and, you know, you pick up games or whatever else. Uh, but if you're there for a couple of months, just go along to the local club. You say, hey, like explain the situation. Even if you're, um, you can't speak the language, you'll find someone there that can, uh, that you can communicate with. And uh, just say, look, can we plug him in to the team for the next two months? This is why, and this is what we're doing. And of course, they'd be more than happy to do that. There's just no, no way in the world that they wouldn't. Um, and to try and bust your myth of uh, is, is expensive to, to world school, uh, Go it on. was I'd actually love to hear this. cheaper for us. We found it cheaper. It, it's it, it's cheaper. It's cheaper to travel than uh, than it is to stay put in one location. And that blew my mind. And that was not that was not evident to me that you know when we when we decided to go because when we decided to go, I was still of the mindset of yeah, this is going to cost an absolute shit ton. You know, six bums on seats on on airplanes, and I'll need two hotel rooms wherever we go or you know i have to at least hire this is back in 2014 so airbnb would yeah it was around um at least i'd have to hire a you know some kind of house and that's probably going to end up costing loads uh but then so like in your case uh you would be uh well let's let's just use a uh, an example let's say and i know families have done this i've met them they put their house up to rent for a year. So when that person, when that family comes in to rent your house for a year, you are earning US dollars each month. Now that might, yes, that might be going to pay off a mortgage depending in depending on anybody's circumstances. So try and, you know, make the rent at least higher than, than the mortgage repayments. Then you have an income. It might only be $250, $500 a month, but that goes a hell of a long way in other countries depending where you want to go that goes a hell of a long way in thailand and vietnam and cambodia it goes a hell of a long way in argentina um venezuela uh you know other other places turkey you know and, and as much as you would be advised you can't go to these places they're absolutely you know like they're on their knees and that's not that is not true when you plug into these countries and you go and you visit you meet the uh, the most wonderful and friendly people. Uh, if you don't want to rent your place out, uh, you could always uh, home swap. That's what we did. We we had a um, a holiday property. We we bought a home in uh, Koh Samui in Thailand in, uh, eighteen years ago. Again, reason being at the time the uh, the exchange rate was very favorable uh, to buy property somewhere uh, outside of Europe or US or wherever. Uh, so we picked up this home and we listed that as a place uh, to home exchange with people. And I'd never even heard of home exchange before until I watched that film, The Holiday, right? With Cameron Diaz and Kate Winslet. 
And I was like, yeah, no, I, I can't imagine ever doing that. Uh, but sure, there we did. We went and did it. And that's how we traveled the world primarily for two and a half years. Uh, even, even today, we still home swap. I've just arranged one today. Uh, a lady from uh, the Cotswolds in England wants to go in, uh, in the summer to Thailand. We've said, yes, absolutely go. Uh, it, it happened to be open and free. And uh, the dates all matched up. So she'll go there with her husband for 10 days. And then we will go and stay in their house in the Cotswolds in England when we want to go and fa uh, visit family sometime, I don't know, in the autumn next year or maybe summer. Like, we don't have to do it simultaneously. Uh, so it, it blows open so many different uh, options and experiences that you just never, ever could have ever experienced if you were just like traveling in kind of the old mindset way you know we land in a place we get a hotel we stand at a hotel for two weeks then we fly somewhere else and we get a hotel and we stay there for two weeks and we fly somewhere else you'll get bankrupt very very quickly and i love the fact that luke mikic is he, he's updating his twitter he's a bitcoiner as well uh doing the nomadic type thing um sure he doesn't have uh, wife and kids traveling around at the same time but he's earning over the internet he's earning in dollars and then he's going to stay in places where those dollars go a lot further in in the local currency and uh he'll, he'll rent a place for a month or two and plug into that local community and the culture uh, so it's definitely doable it's just getting your mind around thinking about things a little differently and getting your ducks in a row, right? It, it, it's just like taking that first step. Yeah. So on a related topic then, Daniel, what would you say to a Bitcoiner who is working in a fiat job, has a family, you know, spouse and a couple of kids and is, you know, is obviously broken through the matrix, can, can see, you know, can see those green lines of code uh, and, uh, and, he, and he wants to escape uh, or, or she. Right, um, but and take this leap to provide their their children this rich experience of world schooling, which, in my mind, is is a far better education than uh, you know staying put somewhere, right? Or and certainly uh, going to school. So, but then you know these nagging doubts come in. Well, how are the bills going to be paid? You know, we we got to get health insurance. We got to get you know all of these little. In nuisances, but very important, or or they might seem that way. Uh, that keep coming up. So, how would you? How would someone need to update their mindset so that they can truly em embrace the Bitcoiner within and and just truly break out? I, I would, uh, yeah, I'd suggest doing a trial run. Take uh, do a six week or eight week uh, trial. Uh, I'm sure your uh, fiat boss would be more than happy to, to grant you a six to eight week sabbatical uh, under the rules of at least you're doing some kind of work um, throughout and keeping in touch with emails and keeping in touch with clients and whatever your role is. And then put your house up on Airbnb or something for, for that eight week period uh, and, see, um, and see if that works. See if people come, see if people uh, are interested in, in renting your place. You're not going to go bankrupt in six to eight weeks, but you're going to get a very good idea of, uh, is this a possible uh, scenario for us? 
and then don't don't overdo it in that six to eight weeks i'm not going to say go to six different countries that's that's crazy you know perhaps do two and uh keep them keep them pretty close if if possible you know you don't do a long haul flight because the the uh kind of nagging doubt in the back of your head if something goes wrong with this that and everything i've got to be on hand you you want to be you know at least uh, a couple of hours flight away for for any kind of emergencies uh so but but just ease yourself in and then once you get back and you're like huh house wasn't burnt down they didn't steal anything because inherently people are good uh we actually made money because they were paying our Airbnb way more than we were paying our Airbnb. And we had a great time. Should we do that again? Like, you know, that would be, that would be my uh, advice. And uh, because once you do that and you, your, your mindset, your mindset starts shifting. Oh and yeah. You didn't lose your job and your boss was still happy when he got back and, you know, your your team hasn't all left and fallen apart and the project that you were working on still got delivered and you still managed to keep up with emails and phone calls. In fact, you probably were more relaxed and even better at work and more efficient. Um, yeah, it, it's generally a win-win-win situation all around. And this is what, uh, yeah, a bunch of people have done that. And I know some people, actually, I was talking to a Bitcoiner uh, today, he's doing this for the conference in Madeira. List, he read my book on his way, uh, yeah, when was it? Like last week, uh, and he, he's just updated me. He's like, right, screw it, let's do it. House is going on Airbnb for like two to three weeks uh, over March, and we're going to Madeira, and I'm buying my tickets, and we're going to take the family and do the whole conference and uh, you know, do the whole thing, do the tourist thing, and spend two or three weeks there rather than fly in, fly out. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty bullish on the fact that they'll probably cover the cost of the flights and the conference tickets and the car rental and have a great holiday and come back. The house will be absolutely fine. And there'll still be a little, little change left over from, from the rent that they managed to charge other people. Yeah. Well, that certainly sounds, uh, like, like a workable plan. What if the person wants to take it one step further and say, yeah, I'm done with the fiat job. I, I just, you know, I'm, why am I feeding my soul to this corporate beast uh, when I could be doing uh, something that actually impacts the world with my time, right? And I, I don't believe there are Bitcoin jobs out there that's, uh, or, or at least not that many, right, that can help uh, folks at a certain stage in their career make that leap and maintain a similar standard of lifestyle. Or, or have, have you seen otherwise, Daniel? No, you can't just quit your fiat job and plug into a Bitcoin job. Um, that's fiat mindset uh, to begin with, I would say. What you can do is, and I, I hate this word like side hustle. Um, it's not a side hustle if it's something that you love doing and it's a skill set that you have curated over your uh over your life, whether they're in professional or personal life, start adding value in the Bitcoin space. If this is a space in which you want to work going forward, start adding value now. And that could be anything. You know, we, we use this term build on Bitcoin. Uh, 
and it's, it turns a lot of people off because the, the, the first thing you think of is, oh, I'm not a coder. I can't download the Bitcoin core code and then build on that and take all of that and make something better. And I, I'm not going to you know, come up with the idea of, of lightning network. And, and I'm not going to come up with the idea of like, you know, hardware wallet. I don't have those kind of skills. No, you, you have a unique skill in which you could start a podcast. You started a podcast, you're building on Bitcoin. You could, you could start memeing, right. You know, just, just to help people uh, understand Bitcoin, you're building on Bitcoin. You could start a YouTube channel. You could, you could write books. You, you're building on Bitcoin all of this time, write articles. You're building on Bitcoin because what you're doing is you're plugging in to the existing uh, community. That community will see your work. Some of them will see your work. It will resonate with them and they will reach out to you and they will want to help you improve or they will want to help you get your message out to a wider audience because they can see the value in it. And then you can start building up from there. But whatever you put out, you get back. You get back in spades. And I'm sure you've felt this as well since starting this podcast. Uh, like the, the most surreal things start happening uh, because you took that leap. You know, you, you put your head up out in the trenches and said, right, I'm going for it. I'm just going to put myself out there and I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a podcast. And I, uh, okay, what do, I need guests. How do I find guests? I'm going to start DMing people. I'm going to start finding their personal emails. I'm going to start, you know, following them here, there and everything. I'm going to start commenting on their posts in LinkedIn. So many things that you can do. Uh, and then add value to, to someone. Just recently, uh, somebody on Orange Pill app has, uh, has contacted me and said, oh, I just listened to one of your podcasts. Uh, I think there's something a little bit off with the audio. Can you send me the MP3 file that you uploaded I can clean it all up for you. This is my day job and I'll have it back to you in a few hours. I'm like, wow. Yes. Thank you. Like, yeah. Random pleb from Orange Pill Lab. Like, amazing. Uh, so I guarantee you that guy in a year's time is going to be telling that story of, oh, yeah. Well, the way I found myself in the Bitcoin space and doing this job for this, that, and the other person and being paid in Bitcoin and exiting my fiat job was because I just started reaching out to podcasts. And I could hear their audio was off and I started improving it for them. And then somebody said, hey, can you work for me full time? That's how it works. And it could be anything. It could, honestly, absolutely anything. It's just one very small anecdotal story. Uh, so that's my, that's my message to anybody that wants to stay, escape their fiat job. We need you. We want you. We welcome you. Just get off your fucking ass. And let's go because, that you know, there's, there's too much at stake if you don't. Yeah, sage advice, uh, Daniel. And I hope the folks listening to, the, uh, to that heed this. Uh, so let's move to the, the final story arc um, that I wanted to talk about, which is how the stories that countries need to tell themselves, nation states, need to tell themselves to adopt Bitcoin or that we need to tell nation states to get them to adopt Bitcoin more broadly. And you've been involved in some of that. Um, how, how, so what is your approach to that? What is the story you tell them? 
Yeah, well, that would that would certainly be very different. And um, yeah, I was very lucky to have been part of um, some conversations again. I just pinched myself. Conversations I never thought I would ever have been privy to if I had not started a podcast, right? This is the stupidest thing. All I do was I literally just record conversations on Zoom and upload it to a website which pushes it out to everybody else and people listen to it and people find value in it. And the next thing you know, You've got a pleb from Madeira calling you up in a panic, like, holy fucking shit. I, I think I've half orange peeled the president. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the story unfolds that um, the, the president of Madeira was visiting Andre's co-working space, his business in, in Funchal. And uh, he just asked, you know, how do we attract more families, more businesses, more entrepreneurial activity to the island? And Andre's flippant answer was, we have to accept Bitcoin. We, we have to be friendly to Bitcoin companies. We, we've got to adopt Bitcoin. And the president's answer was, okay, get whoever you can into my office and explain it to me why this is important. And that culminated in actually having him invited to uh, the Miami 21 conference where, no, my goodness, 22 conference, the Miami 22 conference, where he got to sit down with and um, have a conversation with, with Michael Saylor, uh, with Max Kaiser, with Samson Mao. Um, and then uh, when we came back from uh, Miami, we all uh, went over to the country in June um, I was invited along again, uh, and a handful of other Bitcoiners, people such as Obi Nwosu, uh, who was um, head of uh, coin floor at the time. I think he'd actually just sold out of that business and was starting Fediment. Uh, Jeff Booth, Larry Lapard, Greg Foss, um, Christian Anders, who was uh, he's the exchange owner of... Um, the biggest exchange in uh, in Sweden, Knuts von Holm, uh, you know, who's who's written three books about Bitcoin already, and a bunch of others, uh, which you know, it was like wow, and it was uh, an honor to go around and, and meet different departments of the uh, of the government and, and listen to their questions and, and try and help them understand Bitcoin, um, and it was just that sit back and listen to the questions and try and put across um, in the, uh, the most adequate manner possible um, the the best advice. And for, and you know, as, as Michael Sader, when he was talking to the president, he said, you know, just concentrate on education. That's all you've got to do. Concentrate on education. You, you, nobody needs to pull another Bukele. Nobody needs to come out and say, you know, right, Bitcoin is now legal tender. And you certainly couldn't do that in Madeira or any European country that is, you know, under the EU and um, tied to the euro. There's no way in the world you just put the hugest target on your back. Like, no. But what we can do is support grassroots efforts. And that's what's happened in Madeira. Uh, the Free Madeira Organization has the support of the government. They, they know. I mean, in fact, it was the government's initiative. Go form this organization. We will help you with funding. We will help you with messaging. 
We will help you with um, a, a building. We will help you with connections. We will help you have conversations with some of the biggest owners on the island. And you can explain to them, go and go and speak to their CEOs, which we did. And we managed to orange pill the, the brewery on the island who are now going to start accepting Bitcoin uh, in their flagship store downtown in, in Funchal and going to be one of the main sponsors for the, the, the conference that's going on there. The conference is going to be in the, uh, the, the football stadium right downtown. And that is a, you know, a, fully backed by the government. Can these guys have the football stadium? Can they have the venue? And then the tourist board are helping. So you, you have this situation where uh, a, a nation state, instead of working against Bitcoin and fearing it, is embracing it and push, trying, trying to help plebs push the message out to the citizens. And that's a beautiful thing to see because, as you and I know, it's all about education. It's all about grassroots and bottom up. And if we can get the the people of Madeira there understanding why it's really necessary to start accepting Bitcoin at the uh, the merchants, start saving at Bitcoin personally, then um, I think that'll be a wake up call for people around around the world and certainly around Europe uh to to start taking this thing a little bit more seriously well hopefully there's many more nation states to come but i'm certainly looking forward to visiting madeira for the first time in march um yeah that promises to be a fun conference we'll be there with family so be good uh last question for you daniel uh so what's next in the story arc of Daniel Prince himself? You've written a book, you have a successful podcast, you're orange filling nation states. What's next? <laughs> uh, very kind. I, I'm not, I'm not orange filling nation states single-handedly or yeah, not, not yet. Um, just happy to be a, a, a small part of, of, of what went down. Uh, what is next? Um, I just wrote an article, actually. I quite enjoyed that process. Uh, that was an article about uh, King Henry VIII. Uh, a few a few things inspired me. Um, Rune Ostgard has written a book called Fraud Coin, Thousand Years of Inflation as a Policy. And in that book, he has a lot of historical facts and interesting stories and it helps you understand like how we've got to where we are. Uh, there's another book called uh, History Echoes of Bitcoin. A lot of historical documentation in there about monetary policy and uh, other um, turning points in history and how Bitcoin echoes those turning points in history. And I found those very interesting. And it fig I figured, well, it might be worth looking around for uh, you know other stories in in um, in, in the past that can be tied into today because people love learning about that. And I found a story about King Henry VIII and his great debasement scheme. It's actually called the great debasement scheme. I'm like, what? Even on Wikipedia. I'm like, my goodness. Like, they're not even trying to hide this. Uh, so I started reading that and I couldn't stop, you know, looking into it. I figured I've got to write something about this and hopefully it will help normies, newbies, 
those uninitiated to the orange coin understand about inflation at the very least and how governments do it and why they do it. Uh, so yeah, I wrote that piece. You can find that on the Consensus Network blog. And I've now, um, I'm now toying with the idea of writing a, um, an article about usury uh, and why we live, in my opinion, in a, in a criminal world. Uh, usury is um, defined as uh, charging interest illegally or in a criminal manner. And if you look at any loan that anybody has ever taken out, I mean, many people listening probably have mortgages or might have a car loan. That loan is fraud. It's usury. And it's fraud because the the loaner, the lender, uh, has counterfeited money into the system to give you, to charge you interest on. That's criminal. And in the eyes of any religion, would be called slightly different things across different religions, is illegal and immoral and unethical. But yet, this is the clown world in which we live today. So if somebody walks into their bank and they say, I would like a mortgage on this house, uh, the first thing the bank does is take your life savings as a deposit, and then they counterfeit the rest of the money it still just shocks me and deposit that in your bank account and then charge you interest on it. So it's, it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, and this needs to be looked at a lot closer. Uh, so that that's one, that's one thing I might do is, is write an article about that to try and expose and, and help people understand, you know, why we are right now, because that as well, that that creates perpetual infl inflation. I mean, forget quantitative easing, uh, quantitative easing, and um, buying the central bank buying government bonds. We our monetary supply is being inflated every second of every day because loans are being written every second of every day, and those loans that are written uh, are, are backed by counterfeit money. Uh, that the banks are legally counterfeiting money, legally in air quotes for those that are listening, and. Um, yeah, that debases the purchasing power of every single human being around you incrementally every single second of every single day. So that's why the prices of our goods and services will forever go up under a fiat standard. Forever. Because our money is losing its purchasing power. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think I'll look into writing that article. Otherwise, I'm pushing ahead with the podcast. Looking forward to getting to um, some more conferences in 2024. Uh, yeah, that, that's um, that's me, I suppose. That's great. Well, you know, I do want to talk more about the counterfeiting and usury, but I don't think we have time right now, Daniel. Maybe a follow-up conversation. I, I think that's a great topic, right? It's uh, uh, And one thing I'll say on that is this is terrible financial advice, at least in the conventional sense. None of this is real, right? None of this money is real. So, I mean, just maybe you can use, you can weaponize debt as an individual to to fight back until you move to a, fully to a Bitcoin standard. But uh, it's, a, it's maybe a little counterintuitive, but uh, if the money isn't real, why not weaponize debt to your advantage? Um, 
we, we, we'll, we, we can come back to that uh, at a later date. But Daniel, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And I guess I will see you next in Madeira, most likely, with the family. Looking forward to it, man. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, stepping up and, and adding value to uh, the Bitcoin space. Appreciate it.